Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. This episode was recorded live at WeWork's Creator Awards and it was such a brilliant day and evening and I absolutely loved it. I was so happy to be a part of it. WeWork is a brand I've worked with a few times now. I really love their slogan of do what you love and it's really what this podcast is all about. I interview people about what they do and why they do it. And I even had my book launch for the multi-hyphen method at WeWork. So yeah, I am very pleased to be sharing this with you. I also love that WeWork spaces are full of different types of people working across many different industries. In their recent economic impact report, it says that 45% of members credit WeWork with accelerating their company's growth. It is important where you work, the space that you work in. 54% of WeWork London's female members are founders or in management or sole proprietors. And I really like that statistic. The report really shows how many more people are going out and doing their own thing or joining companies that are startups. And I just think it's a very exciting time. So in this episode, I interview two incredible social entrepreneurs, Joshua Coombs, the founder of Do Something For Nothing. He went viral last year with his work. He is known for giving haircuts to homeless people all around the world. And his amazing storytelling on Instagram is just infectious and inspiring and really inspires and encourages others to connect with people, even in a small way, but to make sure that every day we try and do something that might make a tiny difference to someone else's life. The other guest on this panel was Scott Harrison, the founder of Charity Water. His charity has helped millions get access to clean water and the organisation has raised over $200 million as of January 2016. His book Thirst is out now and it's on the New York Times bestseller list and it's incredible. It's a memoir of Scott, how he has founded his charity and he has such an interesting story to how he's chosen this path in life. So I hope you enjoy this episode and that you check out WeWork, you check out the other winners of the Creator Awards. Um, There were some amazing people doing incredible things. And in general, I just hope that you find this conversation as inspiring as I did. I was absolutely buzzing afterwards and these conversations are, are ones that I will remember for a long, long time. So I'll stop rambling now and here it is. You know, if I want to go make millions, well, then I would leave this work and, and I would go take a job at Facebook or Google. Um, but I, I think if I stay at this long enough, you know, one day I'm going to look behind and see that, that billions and billions of dollars have flowed through my hands to the poorest people of the world. And if I'm not trying to grab onto that, then more will continue to flow. And that'll be a far greater impact or legacy than had I tried to go make a billion dollars for myself and then give some away. So I'm very excited to be here and I'm so excited to talk to these two because you've got a lot to say. Um, We'll get into it. We don't have a lot of time, but just to introduce myself. So I'm Emma Gannon. I'm the host of a podcast called Control-Alt-Delete, which is currently number one in the careers charts. So let's hope it stays there. Um, And it's listened to in over 100 countries, reaches millions of people. But I really love doing these live events because we get to all be together in one room. So, you know, it's a perfect um, collaboration to be here at WeWork for the Creators Awards. I basically interview people about what they do and why they do it, and that's literally the tagline of WeWork. 
do what you love. Um, so let's get into it. But I wanted to, you guys to introduce yourselves yourselves because I think it's obviously so close to your heart what you do, and you will sum it up better than I will. So, Josh, want to go first? Well, I got her now, haven't I? Um, hey, everybody. I can see most of you. These lights are bright, but um, thanks for being here and listening. I'm called Josh Coombs. I'm, I, I guess for the last few years I've been uh, doing something which has taken up all of my time and it's progressed into, um, into a lot more people giving their time. And it's called Do Something for Nothing. It's a hashtag I use and it started out me going out on the streets here in London, meeting people that we pass by every day people who are sleeping on the streets and experiencing homelessness. And I'm a barber and a hairdresser, so I kind of um, transitioned from working in a salon to cutting hair on the street for people. And this started out with just one haircut, and three years later, this is all I do. It's my life, it's telling stories of the people, and it's getting more and more people involved. And this hashtag, do something for nothing, is really, it's, it's transformed into lots of people using their time, doing what they love, and um, being able to go out in their community and connect with people that way. So um, in a nutshell, that's kind of what I've been up to. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Harrison. Uh, so I've, I guess, had two careers. The first one, uh, you would not have invited me on this stage. I was a nightclub promoter in New York City for 10 years, uh, doing lots of drugs and drinking and partying and uh, working at 40 different nightclubs, uh, wanting to become the king of New York nightlife. And at 28 years old... I realized that I had somehow become the worst person that I, that I knew. Um, I was morally bankrupt. I was spiritually bankrupt. I had a you know, gambling, pornography, cigarette problem. I was just, I was, I was a mess. All the vices you would imagine would come with the territory. So I asked myself the question, what would the exact opposite of my degenerate, hedonistic life look like? And, uh, and I didn't, you know, didn't want to pivot or turn 25 or 40 degrees. I was like, what, what does 180 look like? And uh, I, I wound up selling almost everything that I owned and giving one year to serve others on a humanitarian mission in Liberia, of all places, and uh, having to pay $500 a month to the organization just for them to take me. <laughs> Nobody would even let me volunteer for a while. So uh, it, it was a two-year process there from 28 to 30 years old, and I, I saw extreme poverty for the first time. I was living in a country with no electricity, no running water, you know, a country with one doctor for every 50,000 citizens. And I saw people drinking dirty water. And I had never seen a human being drink from a pond or a swamp before. And I was watching children in this country dying of diarrhea. And back in my clubs, I used to sell water for, you know, eight pounds. Like, it was called Voss, right? You want sparkling or still. And I learned that at the time, a billion people on the planet didn't have this thing I'd taken for granted my whole life. And it was a solvable problem. So um, 12 years ago, I came back from that trip. I started Charity Water. And for the last little over a decade, we have um, had a very simple mission to bring clean and safe drinking water to every human being on the planet. Um, we've been able to help about 8.5 million people across 29,000 villages in 26 countries. But um, there's a lot more work to do. So that's, uh, that, that's what keeps us going every day, thinking nobody should drink bad water anywhere um, on, this, on this planet. It's, in, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Clap. Um, I guess that really leads on to my, my next question, which is, you know, what you guys have done on paper now is absolutely incredible. You know, looking at the social media presence you have that you've built over time, the millions of people that you've helped, what was that first step? And I know you alluded to that, like, you know, that moment where you know you want to change things, but kind of 
logistically, how did, what was the first step for you to kind of launch these enterprises? Josh, do you want to go first? You know, it's really difficult for me, I guess, thinking back, like, actually the logistics of, like, the cognitive process, which was me going out on the street and doing this more often. I know definitely the feelings I felt, which was I felt really, really helpless to, like, seeing lots and lots of people on the street, any big city I went to, whether that's here or anywhere else I go, and I think we're all in the same boat. It was this kind of pondering as to, like, why? Why are there so many people on the street? Why is this... Um, something that I don't feel very connected to whatsoever. And it was about trying to listen for me. So I think from those feelings of helplessness, that was weighing pretty heavy on me and I had to get more connected to this. So I mean, for me, it, it looked like having my, my backpack on me one day and I was going to cut a client's hair outside of work and instead I ended up meeting somebody on the street and it was a spontaneous thing really. So it was kind of that moment that really changed things for me. And um, in this kind of hour of a haircut and a conversation and a bit of exchange, of time with somebody, it was literally those feelings kind of went and I realized that I can just work on this small thing. So um, it was quite a spontaneous thing to begin with and then I guess I started thinking more about time and when I could give that more and those kinds of things. It, so it was, it was small steps for sure. It yeah. grew so organically. But what about you? Did you? How did you get it started? Yeah, so I, I came back, I think, with a, a simple mission at least uh, that... that would be clear and, and would be easy to, to get people uh, to believe in. But as I talked to my friends, you know, I had the advantage of coming from outside the charitable establishment. So I didn't know philanthropists. I didn't know givers. I just knew everyday people that like worked at MTV or in fashion or you know, finance. And I realized there was a huge cynicism among charity. Uh, I learned 42% of Americans distrust charities. Um, I've learned it's even worse here. <laughs> the, 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 the cynicism is even higher. And I thought, well, if we're going to make an impact on an issue as big as the global water crisis, if we're actually going to help the hundreds of millions of people that need it, we're going to need to completely disrupt um, the way people think of charities. And just in talking to people, in, in asking them, hey, what would the perfect charity look like to you? How would it behave? How would it be structured? We came up with these, these things that are you know, pretty unique to Charity Water. Um, we just said, well, what if we gave away 100% of all the money we ever raised to only directly fund water projects, and we opened up a separate bank account, and we raised all the overhead separately. So our staff and our office and the, the toner for the copy machine, all that would be paid for by a very small group of people so that every penny, pound, you know, million pounds could go straight to the cause. And then the second thing was, could we just show people what we did with their money? Could we use the technology available to prove people were getting clean water around the world. And that started by us just putting every water point up on Google Earth and Google Maps. So we would send donors the satellite images of the projects they funded. Then we started putting GPS units on our drilling rigs. We started putting our drilling rigs on Twitter. You know, now we have almost 4,000 wells connected to the internet that are, that are showing exactly how much water is flowing in the most rural regions in Ethiopia. Um, so people know that these projects are actually sustainable. So it was just, it was trying to do things differently, trying to be accountable for people's money, trying to be hyper-transparent and say, even if you have you know, five pounds to give, we can guarantee it's going to the cause and we will show you exactly where that five pounds landed and, and the people that it helped. And, uh, and, and it just kind of, it grew from there. I think it was different enough that people, people started giving. That's so interesting. So I think with um, technology and social media, it's, it's good in a way, obviously, that anyone can start something, anyone can 
put an idea out there. Um, it's totally leveled the playing field, but at the same time, it's noisier than ever. There's so much stuff going on constantly, and it's really hard to cut through, even if you're you know, a global company with all of the budget in the world. How important has storytelling been? I mean, it sounds like you really went for the storytelling angle um, of showing exactly what's going on and doing it in a creative way. Yeah, I mean, we, we showed. So I, I was a photographer for those couple years, and you know, I really believe it's one thing to... T First of all, if I hit you guys with statistics, you will all numb out. So if I tell you 600 million people don't have water or one in 10 people on the planet, there's just no feeling, there's no connection. These are abstract numbers. You know, if I tell you people are drinking dirty water, it's different than putting up an image of a child with river water in her hand who vomited all over her shirt you know, that's five years old. Um, I do that sometimes. We put water under microscopes and show people that it's actually alive. You know, we, we have told story after story. Um, there's a story in the book um, I, I didn't even think was true, but I, I'd heard of a 13-year-old girl in Ethiopia who'd been walking eight hours for water every day with 40 pounds of dirty water on her back in a clay pot. And the end of one of these journeys, she slips, she falls, she breaks her clay pot. She watches the water that she's been all day collecting, spill out onto the dust, and she hangs herself from a tree. Does not go back for water. 13-year-old girl ties a noose around her neck, hangs herself from a tree. The elders of the village find her body swinging there. You think a little differently. That's one person trapped of the 663 million people. And, you know, I, I knew that that story was true because um, I, I verified it, but then I wanted to actually get a picture of the tree. So I went back to Ethiopia. I hiked nine hours to get to that village. And I got to know her family. I got to meet her friend that walked for water with her that day. Um, I got to see her grave. I got to meet the priest who gave her funeral. And then before I left, I stood next to that tree that held a 13-year-old girl's body. And I took a picture of it. And I show that image. And I'll tell you, it's just a different way of connecting to the urgency of an issue like this, to the humanity, to the suffering, to, um, you know, not on my watch, people say. Like, 13-year-old girls should not be hanging themselves from trees because they were born in an obscure village where the water is eight hours away. So I think we've, you know, and, and sorry, that's a sad story. We have really happy stories, too, um, of people's lives that are transformed. But I, I heard um, this great quote by Carl Jung that says, transformation is only possible in the presence of images. I love that. Like, we have made a 1,000 videos over the last 10 years. You know, we, we have put up tens of thousands of photos to try to, uh, to transform people's thinking and their minds and their hearts through both true stories but then also images to show and tell. That, that is so powerful, and I, you're so right. With, with one image can change everything and actually spark a new movement and capture everyone's kind of attention to wake up. You tell so many stories really amazingly, especially on Instagram, using you know, long captions to really tell a story, and you do it incredibly well. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's no accident that your account is growing and growing and people find it very moving. Yeah, of course, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm like a firm believer in that's exactly the reason why it has grown is due to the storytelling. Like, when I first went out on the street, I was hearing these stories from people that I just had to start sharing because it completely humanized this issue. And as to what Scott said too, you know, statistics, it just, it didn't move me whatsoever. I was seeing news articles of homelessness rising in five years in London and 
2.3 empty houses per homeless person. It just didn't really get me moving at all. It didn't get me off the couch. And as soon as I was talking to people and they had a face and a name and their eyes and everything in this photo, it seemed to really, really engage people. And the image is a really important way to then draw people into that caption, that story. So I post this before, after transformation with the haircut. And that's a neat way of someone going, hey, cool. And then reading on to, to someone's life. And honestly, truly, it's... It's kind of transformed me, the storytelling side of it as well, in a really, really big way. I didn't realize how interested in each person I am in the individual each time I meet them. I mean, I think I knew I loved stories. We all do. We all want to find out about other people's lives. That's the reason why we go home and watch Netflix or read books or any kind of fiction. We want to transport ourselves for a moment to feel what someone else is feeling. And I feel like on the street with these people, it's like a very learning experience. I realized quite soon that my kind of political, I guess... The reason I started this felt quite political. It was like, I want to do something about this. And it still is in a lot of ways, but I just think I, would, I wasn't ready for like the stories that I was receiving and what that would mean to me. And that then resonated with other, other people for sure. I feel um, that's, that's the biggest way to change anything. I think real change can definitely happen, but opinions have to change first. And I think storytelling is the only way of getting there. And I think it's not being afraid to be creative with that, not being afraid to actually... I mean, that's everyone's... Um, I think everyone's got a talent to do that in some way. I think the, what you were saying about charity and maybe people's negative feelings towards that is like there's a certain story told about certain issues and right or wrong, I just think it's okay to be able to try and tell that in your own way. Totally, and I think what's so powerful about your stories is it's really confronting with our judgments and stereotypes that we don't think we have, but we have. And I think, especially when you're humanizing someone who has a similar job to your friend or got engaged and it fell through or moved countries and it went wrong, it's, it's these things that could happen to anyone and they're very real stories. I guess it's just like, whether you think there's like a place reserved for you in a certain position when you see somebody who's in hardship or not, I suppose we can all relate to just like not being that happy sometimes. And I think that's kind of what I brought it down to is just like where I've been in my life where I've not been happy and what's kind of brought me out of that. And I feel that is relatable to anyone. You do know what it like is to, to, to feel like shit sometimes and, and that can spiral in like many, many different ways. And I think, again, some of the people I meet, it's, it's really, it's just incredible to hear and press rewind on someone's life. I mean, because the image that's there is so, so strong. To be able to kind of rewind back five years is like, it's, it's, it's so important to be able to go back and, and, and almost every time you're gonna find this, this moment that was one way or the other with somebody. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's amazing. It's, it's small things that are huge things over time. Um, right, I'm gonna take a different route now and ask you, Scott, a question about money because you're so good at asking for money. I know you were saying that it's easier when it's for a charity, you're not literally going up to someone going, give me all your money for me. But charities do need money and we need to talk about money. So, yeah, can you tell us how you are so successful in getting people to, you know, put money into the charity? I would actually say for the first seven or eight years, I was terrible at asking for money and I would just tell stories and we were lucky enough that people were compelled. I mean, they would, they would just throw money at us, to be quite honest. I mean, we raised, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars in the first eight years of the organization from a million people. So it was really this grassroots movement of people saying, well, I can understand the problem. I can understand the transparency of how my money could actually meet that need. And then I can see the impact. I mean, it sounds so basic, but this wasn't the experience that people had had when they, when they gave to charities. So I think, you know, as I, as I, 
even started to think bigger about, okay, how, how are we actually going to solve this problem? So I've got two young kids. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and I speak at a lot of young schools. And I actually just got asked to speak at my son's pre-K and come in and show dirty water photos. And, you know, I'm thinking, like, my grandkids, there better not be anybody like me coming in talking about a tenth of the planet without clean water, you know, in an age of technology and trillions of dollars sitting latent in bank accounts and donor-advised funds. So, you know, I'm like, I need to step up my game and get better at actually asking for it. So I have had a couple experiences. There was one recently where, um, I'll just tell the story because it's fun. It's uh, a guy, I was keynoting a, a big conference in the States and a young entrepreneur had invited me out to, uh, to lunch. And at the end of it, he doesn't reach for the bill. I'm like, okay, but you're the guy that just sold your company. I'm the charity guy. No matter, I'll pay. So I pay 68 bucks or whatever. And it was my anniversary. So I'm telling my wife as we're driving away that night, I'm like, you know, young entrepreneur like invites me out, sticks me with a bill, totally okay. But he asked me to lunch. Anyway, that, a couple hours later, he emails and says, hey, thanks so much for lunch. I'm going to give you a million bucks. So I'm like, glad I picked up the tab, right? So uh, he said, I want to do a little due diligence first. I want to meet your partners, and I want to meet um, your, uh, you know, some of your existing donors. So I'm like, great. I send him to see those people. I don't see him next until uh, I was in Dublin at a conference a couple months later. And he says to me, he's like, so are you going to ask me how it went? I need you to ask me for the money. I'm like, you know what? How about $3 million? And he goes, sure. I was like, what? <laughs> he said, sure, I'll wire the money tomorrow. And he wired $3 million the next day. So, some, you know, I was like, should I have asked for five or ten? Like, does, that, does that come naturally to you or do you hover no, over hard. the send it's button? it's really hard. It's, it's yeah. hard because there's, you're, we're all afraid of rejection and, you know, making people feel uncomfortable. But, you know, you get to a point when you do this long enough, like, I didn't keep a penny of that money. You know, I mean, this is, I'm asking for others. I'm asking for people who have no voice, who can't advocate for themselves. And we were talking about this is a green room. There, there are basically four answers. Okay, yes, no, less, or later. I, it's not that bad. And no is the worst answer. And you know, then you go on and you ask the next person. And someone says yes. Rarely do people say more. Um, in fact, that's kind of never happened. So sometimes you have to think bigger. And, and, but I don't know. It, it, it's, it's something that took me a long time to learn. And I wish I had learned it earlier. I wish I'd kind of gotten over that. And there are people that just need to be asked. There are people that want to be asked. They want to help. But, but, you know, they're like, please ask me. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I can, I can, you know, I can completely relate to that, even though it's really different. But like trading in like time and asking people for their time. So obviously with what I do, my biggest commodity I'm trying to get from people is like what can you do with your time to be able to join in with this and be able to go out in your community and use what you love doing I often say to people write down three things you love and write down parallel to that three areas that you might want to help and let's try and join the dots and it's so surprising people are waiting you're right people want to be us they're like how can I help I mean I have people like pick me up from airports and hang out with me for three days in the city I've never been and I stay at their house and it's like people are waiting to like do it, but you're right. I think I've had to learn that as well. And as far as like asking for people's time as as as, as something that's important. Yeah, and have you found, have you recruited like team members or anyone kind of 
doing, you know, who joins your team in any way from people who you ask once and then actually they're like, I actually want to do stuff for you more regularly. Has that, has that happened? Or Yeah, I mean, there's, there's for sure people for me who, you know, it's turned into like a mini network of, of people who I'm constantly in touch with and it is, it's about kind of almost leaving people with um, that experience we had for a while and then that leads on and ripples out to other people in their communities. So yeah, for sure, I think it's, um, and I think the reason for that is, is like people get connected to something and, and it's, it's, just, it's just part of it. I think it's once you're kind of, I don't know, once you're in, I think for me anyway, I've just found that it's a natural thing that it carries on and, and, and that's really beautiful. Yeah. And what about your team? Because is it hard finding like-minded people or, or is it easier than, than people think? I mean, it's certainly hard in the beginning when it's just an idea. And, you know, I was, I was sleeping on a closet floor in New York City, you know, at the beginning. So it's just an idea then. And, you know, it's, I'm, I'm sure there's so many entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs out here. Like, it's just sheer will. You just have to work 80 hours a week. You're out there telling the story. You're just, you're trying to put as much of yourself on the line. And then you have your first employee and your second employee and your third. And, you know, the thing doesn't die and it doesn't run out of money. And, like, there's... You're alive to, you know, to tell the story. So, you know, now, it's funny, we just won um, a big award in, in New York for one of the best workplaces, and we had 1,500 people apply to be the receptionist. You know, it was an entry-level position. There's, you know, there's no stock options, but 1,500 people wanted to answer the phones at Charity Water. Well, that's in year 12. You know? <laughs> no one wanted to answer that. I mean, there was no phone <laughs> in, in, you know, year one, right? <laughs> we were at, like, the Starbucks, you know, checking email. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, if you tell the story and, and look, so many people are looking for, to lead lives with purpose. They're looking to give of their time, of their talent, of their money to things that actually matter, to things that they can trust and believe in. So it's up to us to create lives or, or brands that people can trust. And then the next thing you know, like a million people joined you and then 2 million people joined you and 3 million people joined you. Because I, I think another question that comes up around that is, well, if you are doing good and you have a charity and you are, um, you know, launching something that's a social enterprise, how do you make a living and how do those work together? Because you, you need to make some money to live. You, you know, no one can be an activist and just live with no money. How does that work? You know, commercial versus non-commercial. Well, sorry. people like us poor, that's never going to change. In America, in Europe, like you want your charity leaders poor. I, I joke about this. So I, I could actually drive. So I live in New York City, 12, 120 square meter apartment with two kids and a wife. And I joke that I could drive a $70,000 Toyota, but not a $20,000 Mercedes. $65,000 Volvo, totally okay, not a 25 grand BMW. So, like, perception is reality. And there are people, there's a great guy called Dan Pallotta who wrote a book on charitable. He's given a great TED Talk. He's been trying to change people's minds for 10 years, but it's really hard. So, you know, I think the one, some of us just embrace that. And I drive a Kia Sorento, and I love my Kia Sorento. You know, it's like $28,000, and I've got the car seats installed. And so, you know, you just, you almost have to check your, um, that's just the system that you are working in. If you're working as a charity founder to win trust, you know, we've raised $330 million and I've never bought a business class ticket for myself or anyone else in my organization with donor money. Like, surely, you know, there's a bunch of people that would say you'd be fine, to, you know, you're flying on a red eye to do a speech to 10,000 people. Like, you shouldn't be flying coach. But that's, the, that's what we signed up for. 
we signed up for stewardship, for winning back trust. So those are the, that's the playbook. Those are the rules. And you know, if I want to go make millions, well, then I would leave this work and, and I would go take a job at Facebook or Google. Um, but I, I think if I stay at this long enough, you know, one day I'm going to look behind and see that, that billions and billions of dollars have flowed through my hands to the poorest people of the world. And if I'm not trying to grab onto that, then more will continue to flow. And that'll be a far greater impact or legacy than had I tried to go make a billion dollars for myself and then give some away. I would hope. Yeah, I think, I think for me it's been a tricky um, question and it's kind of a, a strange journey, really. Like I quit my job and like there was nothing waiting for me and there was no like trust fund I was sitting on or anything like that. So it's been like a, a really interesting journey in that sense. But it's strange because I guess I've... Um, in some ways, I've been worried. I'm worried less now about money than I ever have been, and that's not because I'm making any more of it. Um, it's just because I guess I'm very happy in what I'm doing, and kind of things seem to be working out. And there's been different relationships I've built along the way, but I definitely now I feel like I've got to this point where I'm. I love doing what I'm doing so much, and like I'm not going to stop doing it. Like that's a given. Like so, I I I I'm, I know how I feel about this and the reasons why I do it. So it only seems logical to me now to go like, yeah, it should be cool to, to be able to have, not to have to sublet my room in my shared house in Peckham every time I go away for like a month, you know. Um, but, but it's cool because like, I think that's kind of like a, a transition that I've had to grow as a person too and be able to go, actually, yeah, like, I want to make money. Yeah, I do want to make money because guess what? I want to be able to like, be comfortable enough to like, still do this and s still keep on seeing this impact. And s all of those things, are, it outweighs this, this hang-up of like, am I going to earn money and how do I live? Of course I want that. And I think that's a recent thing for me. Yeah, I think a lot of people grapple with it. I mean, I you know, invoiced a brand to do work with them, they've technically paid for my time to go and do the charity work in a weird way. That's how I see it. It's like you, you balance the two and you're allowed to earn money, but it's how you spend your time. This is a really broad question, but you, know, you, you have to have motivation to do this. Like you just said, you're gonna carry on doing it and you know you are for, for you know, forever. Where, where do you think that motivation comes from? Or do you not know? Oh, yeah, I do, but you want to go there? <laughs> That's yes. deep, that stuff. Um, you know, it's um, honestly, I feel like I'm in a place right now where my motto is like, I'm, I'm just learning. Like, I'm always learning about like people and like this process. And I have a real vision for where I want to see this to go. And but it's, it's people that keep me going. Honestly, I have these moments with people where I just like, it's, it's, I can't get from, from anything else in my life. Truly, I just feel like the, it's in the today of it all. It's in the feeling alive in these moments I share with people. It's become really, really addictive. Like volunteering my time is like, it sounds like, I, I just think all of this stuff needs a bit of a, a reframe and a kind of remodel because that's really what I'm trying to do is, is I have some of the best moments I have while I'm out doing the stuff I'm doing. Like I can't wait to get more of it. So um, my motivation is just is in people. It really, really is. It's in, I guess the, the like, you know, the eudaimonic happiness, the deepest stuff. Not the, you know, it's the, you can't really market it. The moments you get with people when it's just like this time trade. And I think I'm really full up with that stuff, you know. And the more you do it, the more you want to do it. Yeah, so it's endless. For sure, and it's like God. It's like these. Anyone, anyone here. It's the same thing. Like it's like you know. What do you remember? Kind of ten years time. You usually don't remember all the stuff that came in and out of your life in the material. It's like those people. It's those people you remember. Those people who taught you something. You know, I often say with some of these guys on the street, they almost become like street shamans. Like truly, like I, I, I guess I meet people and. 
you must, and most people must, I think when someone's in a vulnerable position, like they've truly confronted themselves, and I think I have these very real interactions, and I don't know if you miss the bar scene in New York or not, but I just feel like I don't really miss going out and like on a Saturday night and, and those, those surface interactions I used to have a lot more in my life. I feel like I'm full up with, with this other thing now, and that's what keeps me going back. Yeah, I, I guess um, that's great. I, something came to mind when you were saying that, you know, you want to do more of it. I, there's an expression that people have used for years, the more you give, the more you get, right? I think the more you give, the more you give. I think people can actually get addicted to giving in a really positive way. Um, whether it is giving your time, whether it's giving your money, um, if you have a positive experience. And I think that's why, you know, we take that stewardship really seriously. Like, we want people to have very positive interactions and say, well, I'll do more, not just with us, but for other causes and to end, you know, other suffering in the world. So, um, I, look, my, my motivation, I mean, I, <laughs> I went to the dark side, so I got that out of my system, and I realized that, you know, happiness was not in girls or drugs or status or clubs. And, you know, it took me 10 years to figure that out. And that there was a real freedom in using my talent to advocate for others, to look around at the needless suffering and say, well, I can actually do something about it. I can, um, I can be a guide for people who also want to end it. And I can encourage greater empathy and compassion and lead you know, a movement of radical generosity, try and model that myself and in my family and, and in our culture at the organization. And like, the more you see all of those things, the more you want to do it. I mean, there was a, we were talking about this last night at dinner, there was a six-year-old girl that just sent in, she saw one of our videos online of kids drinking bad water, uh, and her name was uh, Nora, and she says, uh, she debated for all evening whether she would give her money to us or not, six years old. So she goes up and she says, you know, should I give, should I not give, should I give, should I not give? Comes down in the morning and she drops $8.15, her, her whole allowance, on the table and says, Mom, you know, please send this in. She draws a picture of herself next to people that she thinks are in Africa drinking clean water. And, you know, we see something like that and it's, you know, the, the whole office lit up. And the next thing you know, we had a camera crew down in Virginia um, interviewing her and just letting her tell her story in the purest way. And then we built a campaign around that. And we just asked everybody on World Water Day, we're like, all we're asking for is $8.15. Join this six-year-old girl. I think we raised like 80 or 90 grand, you know, in a few hours. So, so she sparked. So, you know, th that keeps you going. Like the, the innocence of a child to lead us to a deeper compassion. She should want to keep her money. She should want to go and buy something. It's us, the older people, that you know, should be more sophisticated. But over time, it's the children that have been these, the most inspiring stories. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to tell these stories that then we look at and say, wow, I want that purity of heart. Or I, you, know, I, 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 you connect with that. Yeah, for sure. And what you said a minute ago reminded me of something that we spoke about at dinner last night too, which was what you said, the term like creating a culture of giving. And I think like that giving culture is something you've done like incredibly, but it's also just, it's so important because I think it's when you create that and through the stories and through stories like this girl, I think that's kind of when people are really feeling what you're doing and want to be connected to it rather than just seeing it as this kind of like external force coming in to say, hey, what do you want from me? What? Like, you know, and I think it's really important to recognize that, like that entry point to like people's lives and kind of like how they can help. It's got to be right. They've got to feel it. And I think that culture of giving is is definitely kind of what that's about and, and trying to create that in the best way. Yeah, I mean, the fact that you have to keep yourself feeling fill up in order to keep the mission going. It's, you know, it's leadership, isn't it? You have to feel, 
you have to feel it um, yourself as well. I mean, on the, I, I had to ask this because I think a lot of people might want to know, is on the flip side of passion and motivation and giving, giving a lot of yourself, giving a lot of your time, giving a lot of your money, the flip side of that can be burnout. Um, I've interviewed a lot of activists who kind of say that they, they don't know when to stop giving and actually it can like, be quite detrimental to their health sometimes. And you kind of got to, got to keep yourself healthy in order to keep going. How do you block out time to make sure you are kind of keeping the momentum and keeping yourselves in check? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't happen very, very often for me. Um, I, I, I need to get better at that, like, for sure. Like, I'm not going to pretend I actually have, like, a really good answer for that because I'm, I'm pretty terrible at it. Like, but then that comes from a place that I'm completely motivated in what I'm doing, and I feel like that's okay. But there are moments where, yeah, I need to be reeled in a bit. Like, there's times where I, when I'm out doing what I'm doing, I'm, I can't be with anyone who is looking at a watch at any point. Like, if I see someone looking at a watch, I'm like, I can't be, like, I have no time right now, agenda, as far as, like, how long I can be here with this person and, like, what I'm doing. Sometimes I do get in situations where I'm like, okay, well, I've given, like, a hell of a lot of energy. I just think it's really important to have those times to reflect. Reflect's the most important thing for me, to be able to download my thoughts and emotions and that energy you've given and being able to kind of find those ways that you can do that. Um, for me, that's like music and it's socializing with friends, but I need to kind of bring that in a little bit more to my life. Or whatever your thing is, I think for, for everyone it's different to be able to have that complete switch off. I think that's necessary. I don't know how you feel like what that is for you, but I think to completely switch off for it is like super difficult for me. Um, I struggle with that. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, I've got two young kids, so, you know, it's, it's the family at the moment. You know, I, I really wanted to be a dad for a while, and um, I'm a little older, and uh, I've got kind of work, and I've got family, and, you know, two, two friends that I see a lot less of just in this period of, you know, a couple toddlers at home. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've designed my life uh, really, you know, I, I can walk to work in seven minutes. And I'm always on that 5 a.m. flight home to land to hopefully take my kids to school. You know, tomorrow morning I'm on the first flight out that will get me there in time to, to pick them up from school and then have the rest of the afternoon and the evening. So, you know, I think you just get good at designing your life. That's what gives me the most energy at the moment is to be home with my wife and my kids. And, uh, you know, there's these two things that you're always trying to keep in balance. Yeah, that's so good to know because I think you're so right. When you love something, it can be all-encompassing, but it is important to learn what your boundaries are and everything else. So that's gone really quick. I've got one last question, and I'm really sorry if this is cliche. I, tr I tried not to end on this note, but I want to end on a positive. Can you both tell me something that you think will change or is changing within our lifetime? Because I think there are lots of things out there that, sadly, it's very, very slow to happen. But is there anything that you just think, actually, at the end of all this, I think I will have made this one small or big change? Like, I guess vision is, and as far as, like, how many people maybe I meet who I transition, like, off the streets and what the ratio of people is of, like, how many people I've directly helped. And I guess, personally, with what I'm doing, I can't really, like, weigh up numbers. I feel like my vision is... Making this, it's like about accessibility. I feel like what will happen, and I'm seeing it, is the idea of charity and the idea of volunteering your time being completely accessible to everybody in a way where you don't have to sign a bunch of forms, you don't have to do it exactly this certain way that this organization does it. It's about you and your friends going out at the weekend or whenever you have a bit of time and going, we're going to go out and, and do something nice for someone. And I think through social media and through Instagram and, and these ways that people are already kind of getting involved in this and are tapping into loads of other incredible people doing similar things, I think that's what I do 
um, strive for, um, is, is kicking that door. I guess visually it's like this, this trying to really just kick that open for as many people as possible because I think everyone's thing's different. And I think um, uh, the thread beneath that, a lot of it is the same, to live in kind of a better place and to be able to cooperate in a better way. But accessibility for me is the biggest thing. It's very infectious, what you do. I love that answer. Um, I think that's part of it, is seeing more and more people open up their hearts, get involved, put aside, you know, reject the apathy and embrace action when it comes to so many of these solvable problems. Um, and I think the world is getting better. So I, I believe there, you know, there are people out there that say the world is getting worse. I actually believe it's getting better, especially when it comes to international development, when it comes to um, extreme poverty. I mean, when I started, there were a billion people without water. Now it's 660 million. And I think it's zero. Like, I actually can see the end when, you know, we drop the mic and we say it's been really hard. It's been 20 or 30 or 40 years, but we've, we've solved it. People are not, they, everybody has this basic need met. And we've rallied enough people. We've energized enough will and momentum to actually do it. And we're not there yet. We're at a fraction of what's needed. You know, the eight and a half million people we've helped, that's 178th of the problem. It's 1.3% of the work that needs to be done. So I think, you know, we are at this kind of tipping point or inflection point where um, it's only going to go faster and, and we're going to continue to make progress. And I think more people will continue to join. It's amazing. Genuinely, truly so inspired by what you have said today. And I can, I can sense the room. I think we're all feeling it. Um, thank you so, so much to both of you. Thank you to you for coming to WeWork. Thank you. Thanks a lot.